What's happening, everyone? My name is Briar, and you are listening to the very first inaugural episode of the At Eden's Edge podcast, where we examine today's cutting-edge science, technology, and philosophy through the divine lens of the Word of God. I'm so excited to be here with you, whether you're in Australia, Hong Kong, or wherever it is you may be listening. You're probably wondering what exactly it is you're getting yourselves into, so to kick things off, I'll give you a little bit of my background, tell you why I decided to start this show, and the direction I see it going in the future. So I'm actually a nursing student at the University of Rochester, here in the Great White North of upstate New York. I have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and molecular biology from Liberty University down in Lynchburg, Virginia. But beyond my formal education, I have a lifelong passion for learning about science. Ever since I was a little boy, I loved reading anything that had to do with biology, astronomy, geology, you name it, I was into it. But in my preteen years, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and had no idea how to reconcile my love of science with my newfound faith. Fortunately, I was introduced to creationism. Creationism is the belief that not only are science and the Bible compatible, but that observable science actually reaffirms what the Bible already says. So, naturally, I became a junkie for all things creation science. I learned as much as I could and gathered as many answers to the questions I had as possible, so I would be able to face any argument anyone could come up with against my beliefs. The podcast is a means for me to share what I've learned with others so they can decide what to believe for themselves. Mainstream science, also known as Darwinism, stifles any notion of a creator and seems to have a monopoly on intellectual thought. I wanted to provide an outlet to fight against the status quo, bringing both creationism and mainstream science to the stage and let the facts speak for themselves. This way, the audience has a fair opportunity to pick which worldview to adhere to instead of just being told what to believe. As for the direction, I'm looking to answer questions listeners may have, interview real creation scientists to show that there are some highly intelligent people that believe the Bible's authority, and study with you all on how what is scientifically observed reaffirms what the Bible already says. On top of that, I want to give everybody a taste of the myriad of discoveries made every day by bringing you the latest scientific news stories and peer-reviewed articles. There won't be a dull moment on this show, so buckle up, get ready, and welcome to the edge. So I've titled today's episode, On the Origin of Evolution. Take a wild guess what we're going to be talking about today. You got it. The theory of evolution. Now some of you are probably thinking, hey, this kid just got talking about creationism and how he's a Christian. Why would he be talking about evolution? My answer to that is twofold. One, I believe that you need to know your enemy before you can properly defend against it and fight back effectively. Meaning you should know evolutionary theory inside and out if you're going to take a worldview opposing it. And two, there have been a lot of very intelligent men and women who have devoted their entire lives to building on the theory of evolution. The fact that so many scientists have bought into the worldview shows that it cannot simply be written off as nonsense. It should at least be looked into. To begin with though, we need to answer the question, what is meant by the term evolution? To do this, I've gathered three definitions. The first I call the literal definition of evolution. This definition is taken from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and is as follows. A process of change in a certain direction. Again, a process of change in a certain direction. 
So what does that mean exactly? Well, I'll give you an example. If you look at cars today, they look very different from when cars were first invented. There was only the Model T initially in the 1920s. But today, a century later, we have Chevy, Ford, Ferrari, Bugatti, and Honda, just to name a few car brands. They come in all shapes and sizes now. You wouldn't be wrong if you said that car designs have evolved over time. They've changed in a certain direction over time. Here's another example. When I started my bachelor's degree, I weighed 155 pounds soaking wet. I was a string bean. At the end of my freshman year, I weighed 185 pounds. I skipped the freshman 15 and went right to the freshman 30. Due to the endless buffet of cheeseburgers and pizza at the cafeteria, my body changed or evolved in weight within the time of my freshman year. The point is, things obviously change with the passage of time. You'd have to be pretty ignorant to deny this fact. The second definition I've called the imposed definition of evolution, or what evolution has been taken to mean in our modern age. Also from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the definition is descent with modification from pre-existing species. This definition is a little more involved and is much more specific than simple change over time in that it refers to change in living things over several generations. To kind of break things down, I'll give an example. We all know how dogs are descended from wolves. At some point in human history, man took certain wolves and bred them over several generations to serve certain purposes, like to hunt game, pull sleds, and even just simple companionship. However, as generations went by, the domesticated wolves began to change as they were bred for certain traits their owners wanted. So over the thousands of years since, some dog breeds have changed so much that they bear more resemblance to a rat than a wolf. I'm looking at you, Chihuahuas. You wouldn't be wrong in saying that dogs have evolved from wolves. And just like with the previous definition, you'd have to be pretty dense to deny that such evolution has happened. Now the third definition is where things get a little bit hairy. I called this the inflated definition of evolution since it gives the word a meaning it never really should have taken on in the first place. The definition is actually in the form of a quote from a well-known evolutionary biologist named Stephen Jay Gould. And it's as follows. Evolution is a process of continuous branching and diversification from common trunks. This pattern of irreversible separation gives life's history its basic directionality. So what in the world does that mean? This defines evolution in a far more complex way than we've previously seen. To Stephen Jay Gould, not only is evolution change in a species over time, but it's also a process by which organisms split away from each other to provide the greater history of life itself. To explain further, evolutionists like Gould believe that not only did dogs evolve from wolves, but that wolves and cats evolved from some common ancestor, as did cats and mice, mice and men, and even men and trees. And this worldview doesn't stop with the appearance of living organisms. The evolutionary worldview encompasses the undirected formation of the universe itself from absolute nothingness. Let me explain exactly what I mean. The evolutionist narrative in a nutshell is as follows. Billions of years ago, the universe exploded into being from a point in nothing. Absolute nothing. All energy, matter, and even space and time themselves came to be from this explosion called the Big Bang. 
Gradually, the energy and matter began to cool down and condense down into stars. Some of the matter circling around those stars formed into spheres and became planets. Eventually, around the star that we call the Sun, our home Earth was formed, and as liquid water appeared on the surface of the planet, chemical reactions within the bodies of water began to form molecules that bound together in chains to form proteins, DNA, and carbohydrates, the basic molecules that we use to take in and build our own bodies. Later, these molecules became encased in membranes to form the first self-replicating cells. Cells, the basis of all life on the planet, gradually became more and more complex, began to group together, and gave rise to life forms like sponges and jellyfish, simple, soft-bodied organisms. As these life forms became more and more complex with each generation, they gave rise to worms, arthropods like insects and crustaceans, sea stars, and other sea life. Fish then evolved, the first life forms with a backbone, they're called vertebrates. Fast forward and eventually fish developed strong front fins and journeyed onto the land, becoming the first amphibians, which is the group that includes frogs and salamanders. From amphibians came reptiles like snakes and lizards and even the dinosaurs. Other reptiles developed hair and became mammals, and some dinosaurs developed feathers and became birds. After the dinosaurs went extinct, the mammals grew in size and variability. One of the groups of mammals that came to be were the primates, like monkeys and lemurs, from which came the apes. One group of apes decided to come down from trees to walk on two legs, develop the use of stone tools, and even learn the secret of making fire. This group of apes would become known as Homo sapiens, our own species. Mankind evolved rapidly in intelligence and formed tribal groups that would eventually give rise to the human culture we know and love today. So when you speak it out, it really does seem like a grand, elegant story of triumph over our humble beginnings. The emerging of life from the primordial ooze. However, when you look into the origins of how this theory came to be, you'll find it's built on a series of assumptions and biases made by men that point-blank refuse to believe in a creator in spite of the evidence. You could begin with Charles Darwin, a 19th century naturalist who's often credited with coming up with the theory of evolution. But the truth is that attempts to explain our origin without a creator are far more ancient with Darwin. It was the ancient Greeks, actually, that came up with the first theory bearing resemblance to the modern evolutionary worldview. They believed that there was a huge variety of creatures of all shapes and sizes that competed for survival, and the life forms that are around today are the ones that survived. Believe it or not, this is an early form of the theory of natural selection, which is one of the key ideas in Darwin's theory. As a matter of fact, the basic principle of species competing for survival fits our second definition of the term of evolution, the imposed definition. As time went on, several thinkers and scientists attempted to explain not only how life came to be, but how the mountains formed and how the stars were made, etc., without the input of a creator god. Charles Lyell came up with the theory of uniformitarianism, the theory that rock formations and layers form slowly over millions and millions of years. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck attempted to explain how animals changed over time, evolved, based on the use and disuse of certain body parts. All these ideas kind of merged together and eventually 
gave rise to the ideas that Charles Darwin presented in his famous book on the origin of species. Darwin theorized, like the Greeks, that life forms competed over limited resources in the environment, and that the ones that were best suited to the environment lived on and reproduced, passing down their well-suited traits to their offspring. However, Darwin was the one who popularized the idea of all life coming from a common ancestor, like I described before. It is on this assumption that the majority of mainstream biology is based, and it is the foundation that evolutionists like our friend Stephen Jay Gould believe they so firmly stand on. But what if I was to tell you that Darwin's idea of natural selection was actually stolen from a Christian scientist? Enter Edward Blythe, an ornithologist, bird scientist, and curator of a museum of bird specimens in India. Blythe was a colleague of Darwin's and also had an interest in how new animal species came to be. However, Blythe had a far different perspective than Darwin. Where Darwin pictured a great tree of life with all the branches of life forms coming from one common ancestor or trunk, Blythe and other Christian biologists like him envisioned an orchard of life, with species changing over time but still keeping the same general body plan. In other words, cats don't become dogs, but wolves can, since they are part of the same dog tree in the orchard. Blythe believed that these trees, or families of animals, were created by God in the beginning, and groups within these families gradually changed in shape and size over time to, to suit whatever environment they found themselves in. For example, the dogs with long hair survive better in cold climates, whereas dogs with short hair survive better in hot and dry climates. Lo and behold, this is exactly what you observe today. To say the contrary, you would be a fool. You look at the gray wolf lives in very snowy, very cold environments. They've got long, thick hair. But then you look at something like the fennec fox, which lives out in the desert. It's got sparser hair, and it's smaller, and it actually has large ears to help regulate its own body temperature. So, in summary, Edward Blythe had no issue with the theory of natural selection being in line with the idea of creation by a personal creator God. While natural selection is an example of good science, evolution from a common ancestor, which I'll call Darwinism from here on out, is not. There is clear evidence for natural selection occurring, but there is as of yet no hard evidence for Darwinism. Some evolutionists point to the fossil record as evidence, saying that life forms seem to change gradually over time. However, the different life forms in the fossil record could just as easily be explained by certain plants and animals living in the same environment and just happen to be buried at the same time. The different layers of rock may just represent different environments rather than different time periods. We're going to get into that much more in depth on the later episode. It's my favorite topic. I love paleontology. Some point to genetic evidence, like how humans and chimpanzees have such similar DNA that it would be foolish to think that humans didn't evolve from apes. What they don't tell you is that when you compare the DNA of any two chimps, you find there is often more difference than when you compare a chimp's DNA to humans, or that most organisms share the same DNA sequences anyway. To me, that screams of a common DNA coder, a common creator, not a common ancestor. The bottom line is, if you adhere to Darwinism, you don't have to be accountable for anything. Without a creator God to make a moral code to live by, you can make your own moral code. You get to be God. 
You have no one to answer to, so you get to say what is right and wrong without fear of guilt or shame. The truth is, this idea is so much older than Darwin. It goes back to the very first few days of creation itself, to when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, believing the lie that they would become like God, and mankind has been trying to be like God ever since. Don't believe the lie, guys. Think critically and dare to challenge the status quo. Alright, let's get into some news stories. Can stimulating the brain treat chronic pain? First one up. This is a story out of the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Scientists are using alternating current to stimulate the somatosensory cortex area of the brain. Now, the somatosensory cortex is the part of the brain that deals with sensation, whether it's pain, heat, cold, touch, etc. What the researchers are doing is enhancing alpha waves, a type of brain wave that the brain naturally generates by attaching electrodes to the part of the head corresponding to where the somatosensory cortex is. The electrodes give off an alternating current, the same type of electricity generated by magnets in a wind turbine. The stimulation to the somatosensory cortex blocks out pain sensation. The really cool thing about this study is that all 20 participants in it reported a significant drop in pain. Some had no pain at all. Now this is a study that I could really get behind as a nursing student because I can already feel my back starting to weaken. Number two, the Swiss army knife of prehistoric tools found in Asia suggests homegrown technology. And this one is on research done at the University of Washington. Carved stone tools called the Levallois cores were recently found to have been used in Asia, supposedly 120,000 years ago. The issue is that modern man supposedly did not arrive in Asia until much later. Stone tools generally are not commonly found in Asia and are thought to have been developed much later than in other parts of the world like Africa and Europe with the arrival of quote-unquote modern humans. First of all, the dates for these tools are based on dating methods that are shaky at best. And secondly, mankind has always been intelligent. We didn't come from dumb brutes, so it's no surprise that early Asian settlers used advanced stone tools that other humans from other parts of the world did. Even the Neanderthals, which were the humans thought to have lived at Asia at the supposed time the stone tools were dated from, were advanced, having been known to bury their dead and make instruments like flutes out of bone. They were not the subhuman cavemen depicted in media. And last but not least, number three. Scientists find remains of huge ancient herbivore. Comes out of Lizwicia, Poland. A fossil was discovered by scientists from Uppsala University in Sweden. The fossil has been named Lizwicia bojani and is a dicynodont, a beaked tusked reptile claimed to be mammal-like. Now these guys weren't dinosaurs, but they were large reptiles. They were previously thought to have ranged in size from that of a prairie dog to a cow, but this one discovered it was the size of an elephant. Wow. This is the biggest dicynodont yet discovered. Huge discovery. And while I would have objections to the labeling of the reptile as mammal-like, it's still really, really cool to see how varied dicynodonts were in size and form. And that's going to be all for today's episode, guys. Like I said in the intro, in the future, I would love to hear any questions that you guys have. So go ahead and email me. My email address is genesisman at live.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-I-S-M-A-N at live.com. Or you can check out my Facebook page. You can search at the at symbol Eden's Edge Podcast. 
and that'll bring you up the Facebook page. I post all kinds of news stories on there, and I post all kinds of news stories on there, including the ones that I went over today. I hope you guys enjoyed, and I look forward to meeting you next time.